Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... This week marked the final episode of HBO's six-part documentary series, McMillions. So I'm joined by two of my colleagues later on in the show to talk about the series and how it brought the McDonald's monopoly scam to light. And just as a heads up, here at the LA Times, we're still a work in progress, and so you may hear some construction noises as this episode goes on. But for now, to kick things off, I'm here with entertainment business reporter Ryan Fonder to talk about the impact of the coronavirus. Of course, it's a major health concern, and Ryan joins me now talk about how the virus is affecting Hollywood and the entertainment industry. So, Ryan, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on. And so, as we already know, coronavirus is causing a lot of fear and anxiety worldwide. Some areas of the world are imposing quarantines as concern increases over the virus. And it seems those fears have begun to make their way here stateside, impacting Hollywood and the entertainment industry. I want to talk to you about the impact that it's having on entertainment-related events, like many of which are kind of now being canceled. So what are some of the, like, the major cancellations that have happened so far? Yeah, I guess we saw South by Southwest get canceled in Austin. It's a huge driver of the economy there. Coachella Valley Music and Arts Festival was pushed to you know sometime in the future in the fall, uh, which is a big deal. And uh, they've had some cases in, in the Coachella Valley, so that's the reason for that. And then I guess the big question is, what's Cannes Film Festival going to do in France? Like, that's a huge festival, and they're still kind of standing pat for now and trying to figure it out, it sounds like. And the Tribeca Film Festival is coming up next month as well in New York, and I think that's one, another festival people have to figure out what to do with. Yeah, and you know, for now, CinemaCon, which is sort of the annual um, movie theater expo in Las Vegas, uh, is supposed to be March 30th. That's when it's supposed to start. For all intents and purposes, right now, it's like the show must go on. But who knows? I mean, anything could happen between now and then. And I personally, along with our colleague Amy Kaufman, was going to be going to Austin for South by Southwest. So I myself know, you know, what it means to have that kind of thing canceled. And like, you got to cancel your hotel rooms, you got to cancel flights. And for filmmakers, for bands that were going to be there, for brands that had activations there, it's a lot of a logistical concern. But what are some of like the economic impacts that say like the cancellation of a huge festival like that has both on like a city level and then on a, you know, a smaller personal level? Right. So I think, you know, when we've written about this in relation to Coachella and South by Southwest, a big festival like that can pump hundreds of millions of dollars into the local economy through Airbnb rentals and restaurant visits and all that kind of stuff. So it's a big deal. And like you said, I mean, you guys have probably heard from filmmakers who, for some people, South by can be a big break for their movie. And a lot of these people are either not having distribution yet or trying to get distribution or very small distributors. So this can be a huge impact on people. Yeah, I've been actually reporting on a story about that, about kind of what the the what next for South by filmmakers. And it's it's tough. I mean, like people, especially at that real scrappy independent level, it was a big deal to get into the film festival. For some people, it was a real stretch to afford to be able to go to the film festival. And right. so to have that platform taken away, that showcase taken away, it's just, it's more than just like logistical headaches. It really has thrown off like an entire, you know, rollout that people had for for their films. 
Right, and you can see the similar thing happening on a larger scale with the major film studios, right? You saw No Time to Die get pushed back into November from its April release date, and that can have a ripple effect on other movies because if you put a huge film like that in the fall where other movies have already established their release dates, it's like you have more competition on a global scale there, so other studios might have to figure out what to do to react to that. And is there any expectations that other blockbuster-type films, really bigger pictures are going to start maybe changing their release dates? Not sure. It could snowball. Uh, We saw Peter Rabbit 2 move its release date. That's sort of like a more mid-range animated release from Sony Pictures. Uh, The big question mark right now is what's Disney going to do about Mulan because you've got 70,000 screens in China that are still closed for business pretty much. And Mulan, I mean, obviously, it's gonna, China's a big market for a movie like that. And if you have a film like that release on March 27th and you can't see it in China for a month and a half after that, people are going to pirate it. And that's a huge cut to the movie's potential profitability. And has one of the impacts of this is I think it's just really pointed out how interconnected the entertainment business is now. The fact that it is a global business and that it does have an impact what happens in China, in Italy, for example, here in America, all around the world, these things are not separate anymore. They really are all interconnected. Yeah, and not just in terms of where the audience is, but actually where the productions happen. The latest Mission Impossible movie, they had to delay production in Italy. That's a big deal. That kind of throws everything off. And uh, Amazing Race also had to change its plans. That's a very much a global inter- international thing. So we're sort of seeing the effects if something like that happens in a global film business. And also we've been talking about this kind of from an economic standpoint, but especially with production, I think there is a much more human resources and sort of like public health concern there. And ha- there have been some productions that have been shutting down out of health concerns and and things like that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, you're starting to see productions affected in a lot of different places, not just Italy. And you're starting to see the the late-night comedy shows start to do their productions without the live studio audience, which I don't even know what that looks like when you (laughs) air something like that. I mean, it's kind of a crazy time to be having, like, the March Madness go on without fans in the seats. I mean, we're about to see what that looks like, but at the moment, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's funny. I keep thinking to myself, I hope that we keep having a situation where, like, we can worry about things like late-night talk show audiences. If that's our problem, then, like, I think we're still doing pretty good. At some point, if we're way past that, then obviously the concerns on this could become much, much bigger and more serious. Yeah, at a certain point, it becomes a little trite just to talk about the impact on Hollywood when you've got this massive global pandemic when people are dying. But yeah, it does have a very significant economic effect. It's not nothing. You can see that in the stock market this week. And so this is something obviously is top of mind for everyone. That's something I think we're going to definitely be talking about more and keeping an eye on. Ryan, thanks so much for being here today. All right, thanks for having me. Now, moving on, I'm joined by television critic Robert Lloyd and TV editor Matt Brennan. Thanks to the two of you for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. I know I often feel like the hottest nightclub in Los Angeles is the LA Times TV Slack. You guys seem to really get into some really animated and excited conversations there. And one recently, I know there's been a lot of enthusiasm about the show McMillions, and that's why I wanted to be sure to have you both in to talk about it now that it's wrapped up. And Robert, you you reviewed the the series for the paper. And so for people who haven't seen the show yet, can you give kind of a thumbnail sketch? What is McMillions about? 
it is about a scam, if you want to call it that, to defraud the McDonald's monopoly game by planting the winning tickets with specific people who would then kick back part of their winnings, probably most of their winnings, to the person who gave them the ticket. And uh, this went on for quite a while, uh, through the 90s, I think, without being detected for years and years. And Matt, what is it about the show that you found so exciting? Well, I think there are a couple things. One is that it's the rare true crime docuseries that doesn't deal in violent crime. Docuseries about grisly murders, torture, kidnapping, rape are almost a dime a dozen in a way that seems sort of maybe unfortunate to me. This has a lightness to it that makes it a little bit more appealing, especially in an era where there's a lot of darkness in the real world. But I also think that what it does nicely is it really balances that with sketches of the participants in the scheme as working people who were maybe not unlike you or I tempted into what seemed like easy money that they were really only stealing from this huge mega corporation and it was like a drop in the bucket to McDonald's who then talk about how their lives were actually changed for the worse because they got embroiled in in a scheme that was really profiting the man, Uncle Jerry Jacobson, who was in a position to steal the tickets, and um, a man with mob ties named Jerry Colombo, who helped sort of like orchestrate some of the logistics. Ultimately, the real sort of profiteers here were the people at the top of this kind of scam pyramid scheme, and the people who were winners. One of the nice touches in the docuseries is that it puts scare quotes around the word winner when it identifies people as a $100,000 winner or $1 million winner. And I think that that accurately reflects that they are not the winners. And that just seems very fitting for an era in which it feels like we're all kind of losers to this system that we can't control. And Robert, I think in your review, you actually mentioned something about that. You say that uh, gaming the system is now just the system. And do you feel like that that was part of what you responded to about the show? Was there something in this story of these people from the 90s trying to rip off McDonald's that resonated for you about today? Yes. I mean, I think probably what I was thinking about at that moment I wrote that was what we might call the new Washington ethos in which whatever you can get away with is fine. There seems to be strange support in the world for that, for winning. And winning doesn't mean what it meant at one point. Winning is just winning, you know, and it has a kind of a negative connotation now that certainly has been helped by the idea that these ideas that come from the, out of the Oval Office, where really it's just a, a short term, whatever benefits you in the, in the short term is good. And it really doesn't matter how you get there. And politics is played differently and gentlemanly ideas of what's right and wrong kind of fade away. I don't know that it's new because there have always been scams and heists and the quote, a sucker born every minute and you never went broke underestimating the intelligence of the American people. Those aren't, those aren't new ideas. We're living through a period of uh, moral confusion, one might say, where that has become endorsed on a, on a high level rather than questioned. So I think that's probably, uh, in my mind, there was some sort of subtweeting going on when I wrote that. The mastermind of the heist, of the, of the scam, Jerry Jacobson, is not featured in the show. And so you point out that that means that the sort of the, what in many other tellings of a story like this, what would be the supporting cast of characters that might just be a brief talking head, 
they become really fleshed out characters. Like people get to know the sort of supporting cast of this ensemble really well. And is that something else that makes this show stick out for you? Yeah, I mean, everything Matt said, I, I agree with. It is a character-driven show. It's essentially, it's a heist comedy. The fact that the villains are absent from the screen, except as spoken about or, or pictured, helps it become a lighter thing. If you were looking at these guys, the people behind it, you would be having to make judgments about them uh, the whole time. You would get a better picture of just that these guys are creeps. But the fact that they're off stage is probably helpful. And it's, it's not uncommon that the perpetrators at, at the center of a, of a crime in a true crime story are not speaking. It's, you know, there's usually a card saying so-and-so, you know, refused requests to speak. But I think it does help. It helps keep it on that level of of it being amusing. I mean, if you look at the opening credits, they are the credits of a of a heist film rather than most true crime documentaries, which now look closer to something like Game of Thrones or True Detective or some kind of dark, you know, something that's darker and more twisted and sets you up for something that's unpleasant, whereas this is like, hey, we're going to have some fun for an hour. And Matt, did you have a favorite from that cast of supporting characters? Well, the obvious fan favorite is um, an FBI special agent named Doug Matthews, who is one of the more compelling docuseries subjects I've seen in some time. Just the um, fact that Matt used the word fan favorite should give you a clue of the kind of <laughs> kind of place this has in the world. Right. I mean, it, he's the kind of person who I imagine if I mean, I'm not a documentary filmmaker, but I imagine that when the two filmmakers behind McMillions encountered him in the flesh, they must have high-fived after the meeting because he is just incredibly charismatic, talkative, impolitic, but not in an offensive way, in a sort of comic way. Robert and I and staff writer Meredith Blake, who did a great story on how they made the docuseries and also a follow-up story on sort of a trend towards scams, um, the sort of in the ether and the evolution of that trend, did a post on the finale that aired Monday night, and uh, we were speculating about who might play uh, Matthews in the movie version that has been optioned by Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Having seen The Informant with Matt Damon, I just think that he has Doug Matthews written all over him, but that's speculative. Robert, are you a fan of Detective Matthews as well, or was there someone else in the cast that, that you were fond of? Yes, I mean, he's he's really at the center. He's the, he's the guy from inside that drives a lot of the storytelling, and he's a goofball. His innate goofiness does color the way that we interpret the story. And when people talk about him, there's a, they talk about you know other people within the FBI or within the prosecutor's office. They regard him with a kind of amused amusement. It is a great group of people. There's a woman named Gloria Brown who's very sympathetic. She's one of the people who become one of the the agents, one of the winners, quote unquote winners, who are recruited by, you know, there's a kind of a, almost like the sort of Amway level of recruit, recruitment so that the people that that are at the end of this chain are, they're kind of inoculated in some strange way from the virulence of the, of the people behind it. But she's a very sweet woman who you feel for. She's super sympathetic. She's just out to kind of get along. She's not out to like, hey, I'm going to get rich. You know, it's just like people are approached at certain times in their lives and they make a bad, bad decision. So she's very sympathetic. The prosecutor, Bark Devereaux, is interesting. There's comical lawyers who wind up representing um, Uncle Jerry who are very funny because they, they sort of go on talking about just how good they are at, at everything. And finally, they just 
admit that they, there's no case they have at all. <laughs> so really, it's it's well it's well chosen. You know, there were like 50 people that were indicted in this, and we see a handful of them. So it's quite possible that uh, that off camera there are real tragedies that we're not seeing. People, you know, whether the, the filmmakers decided that wasn't a good road to go down for the kind of show they were making or uh, people just refuse to talk to them, we don't know. I mean, this is a construct. It is a documentary, but all documentaries are limited by a lot of choices that are related to entertainment. Because one of the things that's so wild about the story is simply to realize like how much money they actually scammed, the $24 million at the end of the day, which I think for most people, at least for myself, like when you see these scratch-off you know, fast food games, you're just assuming it's like, the stakes are, you know, milkshakes and burgers, and maybe someone might win like a thousand dollars or something. But to think that there was that much money that could be swindled from this is kind of astonishing. Well, what you learn in the docu series is that the reason why you never won the million dollars is because these guys <laughs> were stealing the winning tickets and then pawning them off on friends and family to the, then go claim the winnings. So, like, of the slim number of tickets that actually were big winners, none of those entered kind of general circulation because of this scam. What I feel like McMillions does is something that Lorena, the Amazon Prime docuseries about the Lorena Bobbitt case, the seasons of American Crime Story, Ryan Murphy's um, FX series, some shows that Robert has written about really beautifully, like Lodge 49 and um, On Becoming a God in Central Florida, Lodge 49, since canceled, was on AMC. On Becoming a God is on Showtime. That kind of rethink, reframe, reformulate some central premises of both either big real-life cases or sort of trends of 90s and early 2000s American life as being misunderstood because of the way that they were covered, say, in the tabloids at the time. And in looking back at them with fresh eyes, what you end up seeing is an entirely different story from the one that you might have gotten in real time. And I do think that they all kind of weave together into this portrait of we often trace the, the sort of current failings of, of the economy to the Great Recession and the financial crash in 2008. But I think collectively what a lot of these shows kind of amount to is that the root structure of, of those failings lays much earlier. Um, and I think the same thing could be said about some of the sort of cultural challenges that we're facing now about, as Robert put it, moral confusion the roots of that lay much earlier than the election of Donald Trump. And to me, I find it interesting to draw those connections between not just a docu-series like McMillions, but fictional series like Lodge 49 or On Becoming a God in Central Florida. How do you feel about that, Robert? Like the idea that this docu-series is sort of getting at some of the same thematic ideas that a fictional series might be as well. Documentary filmmakers and fictional filmmakers are both storytellers. And when you're looking for themes, you're often drawn to the same kinds of ideas to, to express. There are an awful lot of films, TV films and theatrical films, that interpret recent political events. I mean, that's a common thing to do. So, so people that are filmmakers are, are often looking to real events. They're just getting actors in rather than getting footage of the, the actual people to tell that story. This story, as Matt said, has been optioned for a fictional film. So it's going to be told, in, again, in a, in a different way. Some of the same themes are going to come out. So people are drawn 
to ideas. And this is something that's constructed as a serial, quote-unquote, entertainment. It's not a frontline documentary on the McDonald's scam in which you would have a, a lot of facts thrown out and a narrator that was guiding you along and would tell you the same things. You would learn what happened and how it happened but without the vividness of filmmaking. Well, that's one thing that I think is so interesting in uh, one of the pieces that Meredith Blake wrote is how the filmmakers behind McMillions, Jamie Lee Hernandez and Brian Lazarte, that when they f- they were deep into production, when they found out that there had been this Daily Beast story that came out that then got optioned by Ben Affleck, and so they were suddenly like, oh my God, we got to finish this thing because they suddenly were like, their documentary, they were concerned it was going to be competing with this feature film and they wanted to be sure that they got theirs out first. And I just, I found that idea really compelling and kind of thrilling in a way. I think it's though an interesting testament to how strong and precise their tonal vision is in the docuseries, that sort of comic touch that Robert and I have been talking about, even though the story, I mean, theoretically, you could have, if you had been paying attention in 2001, when the story broke and the indictments came down, you would know that this happened. If you had read the Daily Beast story that came out in 2017 that has since been optioned for the fictional film, you would know that this had happened. It isn't the facts of the case. The facts of the case are interesting, but that's not the reason why McMillions is a really, in my view, great television series. It's because there is an idea behind the facts of the case that is driving the storytelling, and it is still nonfiction, but there is like a point of view to what the case is, why it matters, why it deserves to be sort of retold in this way. And I think the characterization of sort of the little people, one of the things that Robert mentions in our finale recap is that there's even sort of a moment reserved for the company that managed the the Monopoly game for McDonald's, as well as the printing company that actually printed the pieces. Both went out of business because McDonald's withdrew their business after the scam emerged. And the people who worked there who had no connection to the scam ended up losing their jobs. And so the fact that the that this docuseries, which, you know, is sort of sensationalist in its way, still reserves space and time to remind us that those people existed, it shows the kind of care required to turn even the most interesting subject matter into successful popular entertainment. I feel like anybody that's sort of still with us at this point won't mind a a spoiler. So I was so taken with the fact that you all took the time to have a conversation after the final episode had aired, kind of about the last cliffhanger of the series, which was who was the FBI informant that sort of got the whole ball rolling on this story. And Robert, you, I thought it was quite funny that you you like weren't really responding to the show as a cliffhanger. You weren't necessarily that concerned with who the secret informant was. And what were your feelings about that? Well, I think in some ways that was just me being one distracted from that point of it um, as not being essential. There's two big cliffhangers that are two big reveals in the final episode, one of which is the informant, although there's some ambiguity there, there's two different characters that claim responsibility for that, or at least not one responsibility and one knowledge of who she believes actually did it. 
The other is how it was done. I think that's more where my attention was being drawn. It's almost like that's the kind of, the people who uh, were responsible for, for blowing the whistle, in each case it's so left field that no detective work that you could do would have, you know, brought you to that point. The reveal of how the scam is accomplished is in some ways so simple. It's a combination of accident and just we're used to, in heist movies, very complicated Rube Goldberg situations and where one thing has to happen, another thing has to happen, and this person has to psychologically be prepared to make this action, and it's all very silly. This reminds you how simple and unlikely these the way these things are accomplished. And that's really, that was pretty enjoyable. My favorite thing about the final episode, though, is that it becomes really the last quarter of it, maybe, is really just about the human story of the people that we've met and how their relationships change in some ways uh, for the better. There's a lot of reconciliation and reunion and forgiveness, and there's some interesting new friendships that are formed between unlikely characters that you would have thought were just merely adversaries. In the end, it frames, that's what frames it as a comedy, even though in, in real life it was a crime that did actually have a negative effect on people's lives. Some of these people are still struggling. Gloria Brown still has, she was ordered to pay restitution. She doesn't have money. She's getting along. Um, she's not in jail, and she has a son to take care of, and that's great. But uh, it's a tragedy in the contained within a comedy. I will take responsibility for, if not quite forcing, suggesting to Robert and Meredith that we should do something on the finale, in part because I was the kind of sort of trashy TV viewer who was incredibly interested in the like the last minute reveal of who the informant is, in part because it surprised me, but in part because I felt like one of the things that... I'm going to get meta here for a moment about how I think about how we as a newspaper should cover television. We had done sort of Robert's initial review commentary piece on on the series and in which he recommends it for all the reasons we've discussed. Meredith then sort of looked into the making of and finds all of these really great details that you wouldn't know unless you talked to the directors. And then Meredith sort of puts it in the context of this broader pop cultural trend which will culminate later this spring with a series about a scam pulled against who wants to be a millionaire in Britain called Quiz. And it felt to me like the finale was one more touch point where people were going to be talking about this series. And I, you know, why not talk about it with us? And we had all watched it and I, we had all enjoyed it. So it just felt like one more moment to try to engage with this thing that we all liked. And I, it's always fun to to talk with other people who've enjoyed a show because everyone pulls something different out of it. We all had sort of different things that we felt like we wanted to emphasize about the finale. For me, it was definitely the use of the bombshell to sort of like pull you in, even though at some level, the kind of resolution to the story in a way has already been presented, like on a legal basis. For, you know, Robert highlighted different elements like the reconciliation point. Meredith highlighted um, a woman named Robin Colombo, a Jerry Colombo's wife, um, widow, and whether the series sort of treated her sympathetically or, or was making fun of her. I just, that kind of bringing together of different viewpoints is like a replication of the kind of water cooler aspect, which is another thing that I think McMillions has tapped into, and we've talked about it on the podcast before regarding other shows. McMillions aired over the course of six weeks, one episode per week, I feel like I have seen 
this is purely anecdotal, but I have seen more and more people on Twitter say, hey, I'm really into this show, McMillions, and you want to talk about it. And we are the water cooler. And so that is, to me, like the most fun part of my job is I want to not just watch the TV, but I want to come in and gab about it with people. And Robert, we were talking about that. Do you think it's it's significant and part of the reason why you enjoyed McMillions and a lot of people have enjoyed McMillions is the fact that it was shown week to week, that it wasn't like an all-at-once binge model? Well, this is what HBO does. I mean, they're they're not a streamer. They're not a, a binge. You know, with Game of Thrones or True Detective or any of these other shows that they've put on that become points of conversation, the fact that you have a week within which to converse about something and to think about it is is great and everybody is in that same position everybody that's watching it is in the same place nobody's going oh don't tell me about the ending because you've watched it and i still haven't seen it the entire audience doesn't know the same things so they're wondering about the same things and i think that's powerful i think it's a good way to do television well matt Robert, thank you to the both of you for joining us today to talk about McMillions. I can't wait for whatever the next sort of water cooler slack favorite show is going to be. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much, Mark. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash The Real.